You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will be discussing Season 1, Episode 4 of Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack, my boyfriend. I've renamed the episode Shaft Room, Bomb Chicka Wow Wow, Winky Face. Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so glad to be back with all of you. This week is going to be a crazy one. (laughs) It is my daughter's last week of school. And if you have kids, then you know how crazy and busy that can be. You're like so close to the summer. You're so close to the relaxation. But there's all these obstacles of last minute things and activities that people are trying to cram in. They're standing in the way of you and peace at last. And I feeling overwhelmed already. So I am really enjoying just sitting here in my closet. If you want to hop on to my Instagram stories, you can see my little setup that I got going on. Um, I'm really happy to be hiding in my closet right now, in this, in my daughter's closet right now, because it's seriously probably the only peaceful time that I'm going to have for a little bit. Um, last week we talked about my husband working on our bathroom and I was hoping that it would get done in time for this baby shower that I was hosting at my home. And I'll have you know that he actually finished it. I literally have no idea how he did it because the night before we didn't have our sink hooked up. We didn't have our toilet hooked up. There were no like accessories or anything, but it's done. And he did a great job. It's beautiful. I'm going to post a video in my Instagram stories at Mystery Still Unsolved if you care or are at all curious as to what it looks like. Um, I do have a tiny, tiny, tiny update on last week's case, which I want to share with you all before we get started. And I believe that these little bits of info um, make the testimony of the mysterious woman. Do uh, you remember the patient from the psych ward? Um, she's referred to as M in a lot of articles. And I feel like the bits of information that she was able to provide to the police, I was able to figure out specifically what those bits of information were. And I feel like it makes her theory that much more plausible. So two things that police had never mentioned to the public remember guilty knowledge information from Patrice Andres's case, um, was that he had recently been bathed, submerged in water for a prolonged period of time shortly before his death. They knew this because the boy's hands and feet were like incredibly pruny. They also knew the contents of his stomach, which they never released. So his final meal, which I never shared to any of the media sources, M gave them some insight kind of bridge those tunnels. So the reason why the detectives were so keen to believe M is that she mentioned that her mother had been trying to give the young boy a bath when he angered her in some type of way, and then she had beaten him to death while in the tub. This is in alignment with the evidence that we have. Also, they asked M what the boy, who M referred to as Jonathan, had eaten for dinner, and she reported that they had eaten baked beans that night. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly 
what they found in the young boy's stomach at the time that the autopsy was performed. I feel like M holds the key to solving this case and I feel bad that her testimony, it doesn't really seem like it's being taken seriously and I feel like her claims have a lot of weight to them but people are attempting to discount her story because of her like mental status. But honestly, if half of the things that she is saying are true about her incredibly abusive mother, then it makes absolute sense why she'd be that way. This case absolutely breaks my heart, and I do hope that one day we will learn who he was and who did this horrible, awful thing to him. And if it does end up being M's mom, like, there's just not really much they can do because she did pass away shortly before M became comfortable enough to come forward. But I mean, we can at least like know that she did it and like talk mad shit about her. So I'm okay with that. I mean, if that, I mean, I'd rather her be in jail, but if she is not alive anymore, I'll just like say really mean things about her all the time. So yeah. Um, today we are going to be discussing Unsolved Mysteries season one, episode four, hosted by my boyfriend, Mr. Robert Stack, who I will probably refer to as Robbie because me and Robbie are on a first name, uh, pet name basis. This episode covers three fascinating stories. So without further delay, let's begin. The episode begins with the haunting of Queen Mary, which is a luxury ship that traveled the Atlantic Ocean a thousand and one times with its first voyage taking off in 1937. Um, the Queen Mary had patrons such as Bob Hope, Clark Gable, royalty like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and dignitaries like Winston Churchill. The Queen Mary was considered a floating party, redefining luxury travel and breaking boundaries at the time. It took a brief break during World War II when it was actually commandeered by the government to act as a troop ship, mostly due to its unique ability to camouflage in the water. Um, it's painted differently now, but back when it in the 1930s, um, she was painted like completely gray. Um, so she was nicknamed the Gray Ghost. After World War II, she was returned to her pristine glory. Um, over the course of her running life, she witnessed four births and 49 deaths. And the Queen Mary now sits at a dock permanently in Long Beach Harbor, where it has been transformed into a hotel where you can actually stay. You can do tours there. There's a couple of restaurants. Um, they are currently taking a temporary break for the time being. I'm guessing that this is due to COVID, but when it is up and running again, I am absolutely planning on making a trip down there and staying there. It would be incredible. For many years, guests and people working aboard the ship claim to have seen and heard things that they cannot explain. We will talk about just a few of their experiences now. Carol Leiden had been working as a waitress aboard the ship for about 14 years. She had gone into the kitchen to get a complimentary cup of coffee for a woman who had just taken a seat at one of her tables. When she delivered the coffee, she admired the intricacy of the dress that the woman was wearing. It was a gorgeous pink afternoon cocktail dress adorned with lace and ruffles and in the time period of the 1940s. She also noted that the woman's hair was neatly done in ringlets and she was quite pale. The woman didn't really say much of anything, so without speaking to her, she just kind of assumed that she needed a little bit more time before she placed her order, so she walked away. Um, but while Carol headed back to the kitchen, she decided to turn around one more time and just admire that woman's gorgeous dress. 
Only, when she turned around, there was no one at the coffee table. All that remained was an untouched cup of coffee. Nancy Ann, another employee, says that she's the last person that you would think would have this type of an experience, as she is a complete skeptic when it comes to things in like the supernatural realm. She reports that one day she was standing by the stairs by the pool when out of the corner of her eye, she saw a woman in her late 60s, kind of like all black and white, preparing to jump into the pool fully clothed. This startled Nancy enough to like rush down and attempt to help this like possibly senile woman. However, when she came around the corner, the woman that had been standing next to the pillar was gone. It had only taken Nancy a matter of seconds to haul butt down to where the woman had been. There was no way that that elderly woman would have been able to get away that quickly, if she was a living woman, that is. John Smith, a current, well, at the time that this episode was released, current handyman, worked on the boat in the evenings. His job took him into the remote regions of the boat that normally people didn't really go to. During his time exploring and working on the ship, he has heard many unusual sounds. A crash or rupture, the sound of rushing water, and men screaming. Um, The first time that this ever happened, he rushed to the bow of the ship to go check it out. He really felt like something awful had happened, but when he got there, there was nothing to see. He was incredibly confused. Um, Years later, probably when the internet came out, he read an article about an accidental collision that the Queen Mary and this British ship called the Curacao had been involved in that ended up killing 300 men. The place where the ship had been affected was precisely the spot that this handyman had ran to go check that night all those years ago. Over the years, dozens of sightings have been continue to be reported not only by staff but also by like tour groups and and um like people staying at the hotel. Kathy Love is a maintenance supervisor and she and a team member were in the pool area one evening and she was telling this guy about all the things that needed to be done when all of a sudden the two of them heard the gigglings of a little girl which ugh, I hate when they do that in scary movies it freaks me out. Um, it was really late, so it startled them. I mean, kids should be asleep right now and, like, not playing in the pool. They turned around and saw splashing in the pool, but no source of what was causing the splashes. They continued to look. They were worried, like, maybe a little girl's drowning. Suddenly, the splashing stopped, but the confusion did not. The two saw wet footprints get out of the pool and walk into the locker room. They didn't see a person. They just saw footprints appear in real time, but there was no source for these footprints. Although the attempt to recreate these footprints in the episode is laughable at best when they do like their little reenactment, um, the footprints that they make, it literally looks like the girl has like fat Sasquatch feet. (laughs) Uh, The two witnesses involved in this incident, incident were quite freaked out. There seem to be two major hubs or epicenters of supernatural encounters within the Queen Mary. The first is the pool area, which we just talked about, and the second is in the shaft room near the engine room. Here, in 1966, during a routine fire drill, a man named John Petter was crushed to death by a door. 
Um, some believe that John Petter still haunts Shaft Alley. Nancy Ann returns to tell us of an instance when she was in Shaft Alley. She was going up the escalator from the bottom floor to the top floor when she turned around and saw a handyman dressed in dirty blue overalls and a beard. He was incredibly close to her in the reenactment. I don't know if that's how it went down in real life, but that alone is enough to startle you. She decided to move to the side um, to allow the man to pass and probably like get off her jock when he didn't. She turned around to be like, hey, move it, weirdo. Um, But he was gone. Many years ago, she saw a photograph, probably after the internet came around, of John Petter, and she knew that had been the man that had been standing so close to her that day. The production crew of Unsolved Mysteries decided to hire a team of paranormal experts and psychics who came to explore the Queen Mary. They wanted to attempt to verify the eyewitness accounts. And this makes me so excited because this, this is what I love about Unsolved Mysteries because they don't just tell you stories. It's when they get into like this paranormal realm that they start to like invite experts to come and like check things out. And I think that this is just one of the key parts of why so many people love Unsolved Mysteries. Danish-born William Roll was the leading expert of poltergeist at the time that this episode was released. Tony Cornell is another expert that was also brought in. He has been working with the paranormal realm for the last 25 years, well, when this episode was created. Cornell set up his surveillance equipment and Roll headed up a team of psychics. And they claim that these psychics had no background knowledge of the Queen Mary, which, I don't know, I find that kind of hard to believe. I mean, yes, the internet wasn't as prevalent back then, but like, I feel like as soon as you walk into Long Beach, there's probably like information everywhere about the Queen Mary, but maybe not. I don't know. Cornell, uh, or not Cornell, Roll um, sent the psychics armed with a map and no knowledge of the ship, supposedly, um, and the psychics branched out alone to explore different parts of the ship. After the search, the psychics gathered together with William Roll to compare their notes. Some psychics experienced nothing. Um, however, a few of them felt impressions of a craft in Shaft Alley, and another felt the sensation of being crushed. Since a lot of the activity seemed to be coming from that Shaft Alley area, Tony Cornell decided to put a recording device in there overnight to see if they would capture anything of significance. And wouldn't you know that during a two-minute period in that 24-hour surveillance, they did capture something. And I will now play a condensed version of that recording. Robbie um, assures us that the bow had been secured off, so nobody had been allowed to be in or out. Um, and the researchers later attempted to duplicate the sounds to see if there were, if it, it was like some sort of fluke, but they could not be replicated. It was unsuccessful. The Queen Mary seems to be affected by something almost ethereal that has been seen and heard, but has not yet been explained. 
Robert, my boyfriend Robert Stack, wraps up this segment perfectly when he says, Is the Queen Mary haunted? We cannot say yes, but we cannot say no. This leads us to our next case in the episode. On February 27th, 1978, in Teleco Plains, Tennessee, there's this piece of shit guy named Joe Shepard and his two piece of shit friends. And they're sitting in a parked car by the woods in the dark. Uh, Roxanne Woodson is 16 and she's in the front seat as well. And she is fighting off the advances of Joe Shepard um, while his two lame friends watched from the back seat. Um, they never really talk about how old Joe Shepard is, but we know that Roxanne is 16 and Joe Shepard has been married and he has children. So what he is doing, trying to like make out with a 16 year old girl is beyond me. Um, they don't really talk about it, which infuriates me. And also they keep referring to these girls as women and technically they are women, but they're also children. So let's just remember that. Okay, everyone. Um, at some point, Roxanne is scared because she's 16 years old and she's getting, like, groped by a grown man, um, escapes the car, and she runs off into the night and into the woods. Joe Shepard runs after her as his two idiot friends wait. Uh, sometime later, Joe Shepard returns to the vehicle, but Roxanne doesn't. When she fails to come home, her family obviously begins to worry because she's a child. When Roxanne failed to come home, her family began to worry. You just wring your hands and there's no outlet. There's no relief because you haven't got her. She's gone. You don't know what's happened to her. And she's out there and you can't reach her. And you can't help her. At the time that Robert Stack was hosting this episode, um, Roxanne this story was like already 10 years old. So it was pretty old. And I was super confused as to why this mystery was unsolved because it seems pretty obvious what happened, but don't get your panties in a bunch just yet. Hang in there. Police went to Joe's house and requested that he come down to the station with them for questioning. He agreed to go, but he said that he needed to go put his boots on and his boots were in his room. So the police waited in the living room, waited for him to come out while simultaneously keeping an eye on him. After Joe put on his boots, though, Mm, he decided to do something really weird. Um, he reached under his bed and grabbed a shotgun, which he then pointed at the police officers. Ooh. The police fired two warning shots, which was uh, considerate of them because they don't really do that anymore, um, and then tackled him to the ground, arresting him and bringing him down to the station. Uh, they questioned Joe about the night that Roxanne went missing, and Joe claimed that he had attempted to seduce Roxanne, which um, I don't really think he knows the definition of seduce because seduce and rape are not mutually exclusive. Um, so I think what you meant to say, Joe, is that you attempted to rape Roxanne and that she had gotten mad at you and jumped out of the car and into the woods. Um, Joe continued to say that he ran into the woods after her and after some time, he returned to the car and he told the other guys that he'd try to bring her back, but he didn't know where she was, and so they left. Joe was held for attempting to assault officers, but was eventually released on bond. For three days, 60 people combed the woods in an attempt to find Roxanne. Weirdly enough, the police allowed Joe Shepard, their number one suspect, to be one of those 60 volunteers. My first thought was, 
How dumb do you gotta be? But after thinking about it, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that it was strategic, that they were trying to keep an eye on him to see what he was going to try and do. I literally don't know if that's true, but I've got to believe that people are not that stupid so I can keep from combusting spontaneously in a fit of rage. The police brought in the pups, I love the pups, who only tracked her a few yards and then they lost her scent. Um, The girl's family was obviously super, super worried. After a few days, the search was called off and they hadn't found anything. On April 8th, 1978, Roxanne's body was found, though. Joe Shepard's mother had been standing at her kitchen window when she noticed that two of her dogs seemed very interested in a certain area of her front yard. She assumed that there was a snake or some type of animal that they were messing with. Nonetheless, she decided to check it out. Coming out of the ground were two hands. She ran inside and got her husband, and then together they phoned the police. The police came, and after thorough examination, it was determined that it was indeed the body of Roxanne Woodson. Roxanne's clothes were missing, and her own pants had been used to wrap around her head. It is believed that she had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. Joe Shepard was yet again brought in for interrogation. But... He wasn't just brought into interrogation easily because Joe can't do that. Um, They apparently went to his ex-mother-in-law's house. So remember I told you he'd been married. So he went to his ex-mother-in-law's house under the guise that he wanted to visit with his children. And then when the police went there looking for him, he told his child to get into bed and to bunch the covers down at the bottom. And he tried to like hide underneath like bulky covers, but it didn't work because it just didn't work because he's an idiot. And he thought that that would work, and he's stupid. Anyways, this time, Joe's story changed slightly. He said that when Roxanne ran from the car, he gave chase, and as he was, as she was running, she had fallen and struck her head on a rock. He claims that he tried to revive her because he thought that she had just been, like, knocked out. But when his attempts failed, he panicked and returned to the car, telling his loser friends that he just, like, couldn't find her. He dropped the men home, and then he returned to the scene. He grabbed her body, placed it in his car, and then buried her in his parents' yard. When asked why he didn't contact the police, he claimed that due to his former issues with law enforcement, he worried that he would be blamed for his death, for her death, and panicked. Joe was brought before a judge who formally charged him for the murder of Roxanne Woodson. As the case resolved. Another one was about to open as Joe dropped a literal bomb on detectives. You see, there was another disappearance of a woman. Well, they say woman, but it's actually a 14-year-old girl. I don't know why they always do this in these episodes, but anyways, she had vanished two years earlier. Joe agreed to take investigators to the body of Kathy Clowers. Joe found a spot and told investigators to start digging. They had dug for quite some time and they hadn't found anything. But after some time, they did end up finding Kathy. I'll never forget Joe Shepard was hunkered down beside the, the hole we were digging. And he looked up with his cold smile on his face and said, See, I told you so. He was proud, I think, of, of the fact that he had produced a body for us and, and showed no emotion at all. 
Kathy was badly decomposed, but through her teeth, they were able to positively identify her body. There was no evidence on the skeleton that indicated her cause of death. This makes me, this is just my personal opinion, this makes me think that she was either strangled or suffocated, as that would not show up after the soft tissues deteriorate. She was also found with her pants wrapped around her head, and it's believed that she had also been sexually assaulted. So, as you can see, a pattern is being established. There's a missing clothing of the women, the girls. Uh, the girls have pants wrapped around their head, they're buried, and they're both sexually assaulted. So, yeah, this guy freaking sucks. On April 17, 1978, Joe was formally indicted for the murder of Kathy Clowers. He was held in a county jail. On the evening of July 17, 1978, one of the jailers was summoned to a cell nearby Joe's. The jailer is stupid, and he was lured into the cell by a man who was pretending to be sick, which is like how to escape from prison 101. Um, and he ended up being overtaken by the man and his roommate. After locking the jailer in the cell, the two men ran directly to Joe's cell and released him as well. The three men fled the prison. While two of the men were captured within the week, Joe, at the time of this episode, still remained at large. I feel certain that Joe is a danger to society. The methodology that he put into each act was that of a very criminal mind, a mind that feels no guilt or he is just there and he's capable of doing it at any time. It's, we don't know what sets him off. We're able to hear from Roxanne's grandmother, when, and she says that she would love for Joe Shepard to be recaptured and brought to justice for his crimes. She says she not only wants to see um, this come to fruition for personal reasons, um, you know, because her granddaughter was murdered by this man, but she also wants to see him receive justice for the mothers whose daughters may currently be in danger at this time with him on the loose. Joe Shepard, um, he is six feet tall, 150 pounds. He's this like tall, gangly thing with long brown hair, often sporting a sparse mustache. Seriously, buddy, just like let it go. Your mustache dreams are dead. Someone had reported seeing him near El Paso, Texas shortly before this episode was released. Police have reason to believe that he may be living along the Mexican border. Breaking news. London, Ontario, Canada, a 10-year search for Joe ended. Shortly after the release of this episode, police received a phone call from a local resident who believed he knew Joe Shepard as Joseph Tripp. They began an investigation, and he was later arrested. At the time of Joe's arrest, he was living in government housing with his common-law wife and two young children. It's believed that Joe fled to Canada, like, almost immediately after escaping the county jail. So while the police were way off base when they thought he was near the Mexican border, he was completely in the opposite direction, in fact. But he does have, like, a pretty basic bland face, so it doesn't surprise me at all that someone thought that they saw him in El Paso and then, like, all of the investigative... Investi eh! All the investigatory efforts um, concentrated south rather than north. I'm, like, thinking about, like, re-recording that, but I just want you guys to know that I'm a real person and sometimes I am silly. 
Joe Shepard was extradited back to the U.S. and convicted in the death of Kathy Clowers and felony murder in the death of Roxanne Woodson. He actually died while in prison of natural causes in 2010. This brings us to our final case of the episode, which takes place in Wickaset, Maine, a town that I imagine would be featured on one of those postcards from Cracker Barrel. It is super tiny. It's super quaint. Only about 3,000 people lived there at the time. Many people from around the world visited Wickaset as a place to like just relax and vacation and be one with like the neighbors and that small town feel. But to a local woman named Gail Delano, Wickaset was no paradise. It was a prison. Then Robert Stack comes out with this pink diary with like a pink tassel on it. And he's holding it, clutching it close to his chest. And he says that he knows that Gail Delano felt like a prisoner in Wicasset because it says so in her diary. Robbie, why are you going through her diary? That is so rude. I don't like that at all. I understand that like investigators would need to go through it, but she probably didn't anticipate the entire country hearing it out loud on Unsolved Mysteries. This is why I don't keep a diary, people, because if I ever get murdered and I have a segment on a show, they're going to read it and they're going to hear about all the things that I really have to say about people because I literally never write in my diary when I'm happy. I only write in it when I'm like trying to like get my hatred out on someone like in a rage and so like if somebody's like oh um great grandma rochelle died why don't we like display some of these diaries like out on the table like how cute would that be no it's not going to be cute because it's going to be filled with like my hate-filled rants about certain members of my family and how annoying they are so please do not find my diaries do not display them and certainly don't put them on a segment of unsolved mysteries Anyways, basically she claims that Maine brought out the worst in her and that she was feeling incredibly lonely. She so badly wanted to be in love, but there weren't really any promising prospects. And I feel you, girl. Not much has changed. Um, I feel bad. I feel like she was really depressed and feeling just so hopeless. She writes that, quote, she needs someone so desperately, but nothing seems to be working out. Gail was twice divorced and the mother of two teenage sons. She was looking for companionship in the personal ads, which if you don't know what a personal ad is because you're under the age of like 25, it's essentially like a really old school Tinder that would like go out in the newspaper. But it was a little bit more serious than Tinder because you had to actually pay the newspaper to put this personal ad out. So I feel like there were people that were more serious, like people that really wanted to have a committed relationship would pay money to kind of like advertise themselves and advertise what they're looking for. Um, I'm going to read you her ad, uh, Gail's ad, but then I do want to read some of the others because they're really pretty hilarious. So Gail's ad reads, unique female, 34, attractive, trim, intelligent, affectionate, independent, slightly crazy night owl, likes movies, music, dance, and dining. She is seeking an easygoing, intelligent, responsible, 
not overweight, take a chill pill, Gail, rude, male for a growing relationship. I'm in Wickaset. Where are you? And then she wrote her address. Everyone who takes out an ad does this. And I feel like this was a poorly thought out idea, (laughs) but it was like the, when did we say this was? Was it in the seventies? Was it in the seventies? I think it was. Let me see. Let me see. It doesn't actually say when it happened. I think it was the 1980s or something. And we all know that in the 70s and 80s, people were really ridiculous. And like, they were like, oh, you're a stranger. Want to know where I live? Sure. Let me just post it in my local paper. Anyways, um, basically Robbie. Oh, let me read you the other ones. I totally forgot about that. I took a picture of it because they are so cringeworthy. And I wanted to share them with you. All right, here we go. All right, so there's another one that says WWW52. I don't know what WWW means. What does that mean? I don't know. Anyways, trim, healthy, optimistic, seeks interesting, compatible WWM between the ages of 50 and 65 for correspondence, friendship, fun, adventure. What is a WWW and what is a WWM? I'm going to look that up. WWM personal ad. Literally don't know. Okay, well, whatever. Um, then there's another one. It says, why don't you sail with me? <laughs> Attractive professional man, age 30, six foot two, seeking a slim, athletic 20 to 30 year old woman along southern Maine coast. Thanks in advance. <laughs> and then there's another one that just says, Doctor, 38, recently divorced, would like to meet an unusually attractive professional female between the ages of 28 and 38 who might enjoy dining out, ocean views, boating, and music. What does unusually attractive mean? I feel like that would be like the name of my book. If I ever like came out with a memoir, I'd be like, Rochelle, unusually attractive. Anyways, I just thought those were real gems, so I wanted to share them with you. Okay, um, basically, Robbie proceeds to tell us that although Gail described herself in the way that she did, she was actually none of those things. Robert says, and so, it, like, if you read between the lines, he basically says that she was plain, boring, basic, and about as exciting as vanilla yogurt through and through. Her friends agreed with him. No wonder she was so sad. Her friends sucked. Anyways, regardless, on the morning of June 21st, 1986, Gail drove to a restaurant in New Brunswick, Maine to meet a blind date that she had met through her personal ad. After that morning, her family never saw Gail again. Then we go back to her diary. The last entry in her diary read, It would be nice to find someone to date over the summer. Who knows? Maybe I'll get lucky and find someone interesting. On Friday evening, June 20th, the night before Gail goes missing, Gail's sons recall that she had spoken to a man for like two hours that they assumed that she had met through the personal ads. She said that she planned to meet this man, who she called John, for coffee. And if things went well, she was planning on spending the afternoon with him. 
On the day Gail went missing, her son Ryan came home at night to find her gone. It wasn't unusual for Gail to go out for the night, but it was unusual for her to not contact her children. She was very good at keeping tabs on them, so Gail's parents were immediately very worried. Unfortunately, after calling the police, they had to wait until Monday because of that stupid, like, three-day rule to officially report her missing and to uh, search her car. Nothing of great significance was found in the car, so the police had it towed away. Later that same day, a busboy cleaning up the parking lot found a set of keys. These keys ended up belonging to Gail. Two weeks later, a nine-year-old boy found a discarded purse in the bushes next to the restaurant. At first, the purse seemed tidy and neat, but then after going through the wallet, they noticed that it was completely empty. They seem alarmed that even Gail's emergency $5 bill was missing from its secret compartment. And I'm like, whoa, inflation is insane. What could you even do with a $5 bill in the case of an emergency today? Uh, I'll tell you, nada. Then they go through Gail's calendar and they find an entry written for June 20th and it says, John called, talk two hours. This lady had a knack for writing down every detail of her life and I feel so bad because the things that she wrote down really weren't all that exciting. Poor lady. I feel like she really was just so sad. Um, they were able to find this John character, but he claimed that he actually hadn't spoken to Gail in months and the police were baffled. Were the keys and purse ditched by someone who had possibly attacked Gail, or is it possible that Gail had placed the keys and purse there herself? A new theory about Gail's disappearance came to light after police spoke to a late-night disc jockey who was, like, supposedly one of Gail's really good friends, but he is, like, the worst friend ever. He's horrible. Like, no wonder she was so sad. She didn't really have any real friends that were nice. Anyways, this guy, his name is Christian Roy, and he claimed that Gail would call sometime after 1 a.m. a few times a week and keep him company while he was, like, running his radio station in between, like, songs and, and commercial breaks or whatever. Although the two had never met in person, Gail felt a real connection with Christian, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't mutual because Gail asked if they would like to meet up, and he just kind of glazes over what his answer was. He doesn't really tell us, um, but he does tell us that Gail always seems so depressed pressed on the phone to the point of like not even having motivation to get up from the couch. Um, Christian said he always felt that Gail was going to perhaps give up at the drop of a hat, just like she wanted to cease to exist or disappear. For years, we learned that Gail had struggled with depression. She took medication and told family members about her suicidal thoughts. Susan, who is Gail's sister, feels that her sister did talk about committing suicide from time to time, but that she doesn't think that she would really ever do it. Gail's family distributed missing posters at truck stops. They also sent missing posters with truck drivers to help them like get it along uh, the United States, which I think is a really great idea considering we didn't have internet at that time. Like it was basically just like a, like a version of an Amber alert, but they didn't have the Amber alert back then. Um, one day through these posters, they received a call from a man named John Scott of Swampsea, 
South Carolina. And John claimed that he recognized Gail as a woman that he'd given a ride to a few months prior. They spent about 24 hours together, and he said that she hadn't talked much, but that he did know that she had a northern accent. He said that normally when he picks up hitchhikers, they're kind of like raggedy and uneducated, but she stood out to him because he said Gail was different than his usual, like, pickups. Uh, she seemed very out of place. Um, he assumed that she was escaping some sort of domestic abuse situation, but obviously we know that's not true, but that was just his assumption. Um, when they parted ways about 24 hours later, he bought her lunch and he gave her a $50 bill because she had run out of money. John said that he would bet all of the money to his name that he had that, that that was the woman that he had given a ride to, that it was Gail. Police are toying with the idea that this disappearance was self-orchestrated. They felt that she might have concocted a story to her boys and parents about meeting someone at a restaurant, but that it just wasn't true. Um, They believe that she went to the restaurant, parked her car, ditched her keys and purse, and hitchhiked with someone leaving the restaurant. Uh, The DJ Christian says, no way, absolutely, that didn't happen. He claims that Gail did not have it together enough and that she wasn't brave enough or sure of herself enough to basically kill herself he basically just said like gail is so crappy at everything that she couldn't even do that if she wanted to he's like literally like a jerk i don't like him at all anyways he said that she was kind of agoraphobic and that it was difficult for her to even like go out and get an ice cream cone let alone like alter her complete an entire life um, her mother pleads for Gail to contact them if she is alive. She states, you don't even have to come home. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to call us or write us a letter. Just please contact Unsolved Mysteries and let us know that you're okay. Was Gail the victim of foul play? Is she suffering from amnesia, which is kind of the conjecture of her family, I think just to make things a little bit easier, or did she leave by choice? Hmm breaking news mobile alabama the two and a half year search for gail delano had has come to an end tragically um gail actually did take her own life shortly after her disappearance um a medical examiner in mobile alabama watched the episode and he recognized gail's photo as a current jane doe that was sitting in their mortuary A hotel had discovered her body in 1986 after a woman who had checked into the hotel under the name Jackie Stafford um, basically committed suicide through overdose. Um, Mobile Alabama detectives had always held on to the hopes that one day they would discover who she was, and after two weeks of testing, a positive ID was made. Um, police theorized that Gail definitely orchestrated her disappearance and somehow got herself to Alabama and checked into the hotel and committed suicide. Um, her family held a memorial service for her later that year when this episode was released. Um, I feel so bad for Gail. I wish that she would have felt that she had the resources available to her and that she had reached out for help. It actually does seem like she reached out for help because it seems like her siblings and her family knew that she was suicidal and she must have been seeing some sort of a doctor if she was getting prescribed medication, but it seemed that her pleas went unnoticed or unheard or disregarded. 
if you are personally struggling with suicidal thoughts, please know that you're not alone. There are people out there who are trained and happy to help you if you feel like you're not getting any support at home. You can call them if you're living within the Utah area at this number. It is the Suicide Prevention Hotline, 800-273-8255. Help is available and please speak with somebody today. If you are someone who has a loved one um, and that person reaches out to you and tells you that they're feeling down or having suicidal thoughts, please believe them. Ask them how you can help and help them to acquire resources. Um, I personally have a relative that suffers with depression and bipolar disorder and suicidal tendencies, and sometimes it's not enough to tell them to seek help. A lot of people who suffer from depression also suffer from lack of motivation and having to like go online and do the research to find help. Like while that seems like nothing to us, it can seem really overwhelming to somebody that's going through that. So offer to make those calls and then make the calls and make the appointments and physically drive them there. Then let them take it from there because they can only get help if they want it, but we can help by doing what we can and supporting them and encouraging them. Um, One thing that I want to just circle back to is if she, Gail, um, did orchestrate this entire thing. I'm, I'm wondering about that two and a half hour phone call the night before. Was she really talking to somebody or was like that all part of the ruse? Was she pretending to talk to somebody for two and a half hours? Because if so, that's really sad and just really sad. Or, or maybe she really was talking to somebody and she was just like, you know, if this, if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to give up. Or if this works out, then I'll, I'll give it another shot. But maybe like she went and like the guy was like a dud or a loser, just like the chemistry wasn't going on. And she just was like, that's it. I've had it. I'm done. I'm just going to be, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. So this is what we're going to do. I'm just like, I don't know. I just like want to know about more about that phone call. And if she actually ever did meet anyone at the restaurant. Anyways, I love you guys. I hope you all have an amazing week and an incredible Memorial Day weekend. If you miss me, head over to the Instagram at Unsolved. You can go to my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com and get to binging. Tell your true crime loving friends and family about me. DM me with your case suggestions, comment on the post that I made today, and share your thoughts, theories, opinions, and comments. I love to read them. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?